Grace, peace, and mercy be upon you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. A preacher who suffered extreme strained relations with his congregation was finally appointed chaplain of the state prison. Elated to be rid of him so easily, the people came in great numbers to hear his farewell sermon. The preacher chose as his text John 14, verse 3. I go and prepare a place for you, that where I am, there you may be also. Well, I have chosen for the text today parts of 2 Timothy chapter 2 and 3. And this is not my farewell sermon, thankfully. I don't suffer strained relations with you, at least not to the extreme that I would be banished uh, as chaplain of the state prison. Nevertheless, we can see here from Paul's second letter to the young Pastor Timothy, there were strained relations in an early congregation, probably in Ephesus. And we would do well to compare the challenges of Paul and Timothy's day to our own. We should also find it puzzling that this reading does not appear in the Sunday rotation for the Christian church because we can see ourselves in it. And not only that, we can see godlessness in these last days, which Paul speaks of in these verses. And we need assurance in these last days of God's loving grace and compassion. We know this to be a letter from Paul to Timothy, but apparently private correspondence, it wasn't kept private for very long because Christian congregations found these letters useful. So they got passed around and copied and they were heard for learning, rebuking, admonishing, encouraging, all of that. So let's let these words do the same for us. I'm going to read, read through the text and you can follow along in your service folder and I'm going to, you know, it, here's the thing. I mean, this verse is, these verses are fairly easy to understand in that they don't have bizarre sentence structure. It's pretty plain speak from Paul, right? But I'm going to translate some of the words into something different than your English translation has uh, be, to give you maybe a little more insight as to what Paul is saying, okay? So I'm going to start with verse 14. This is how Paul begins these verses. He says to Timothy, Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Remind them of these things. Remind who? Who's the them? Well, if you look earlier in the chapter 2, we see that them are the faithful men who are able to teach. So these are the, the men that are Christian converts now, and they, they want to share the message of God. They want to be pastors and deacons and elders like Timothy and Paul, and they want to share the good news, okay? That's the them. But Paul is charging Timothy to remind these guys not to quarrel about words which does no good because it ruins the hearers. Think of our seminaries that we have, right? There's one in Fort Wayne, there's one in St. Louis, Missouri, populated by mostly young students. You'll meet one of them this coming Sunday. I've been there, okay? I wasn't one of the young ones. <laughs> They like to argue, okay? They like to argue and squabble over theology and doctrine. And most of it is done in good, in good grace, right? But sometimes they can get a little heated 
and get into their arguments. And, you know, if they were to do that in the church, you wouldn't stand for that, right? It's like, settle your arguments outside. You know, you're not going to stand for that because it only ruins you, the hearers, to hear these guys argue. So Paul reminds Timothy to remind them, do your best to present yourself to God because God sees all things as one approved, as a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightfully, or rightly handling the word of truth. We tell you, ministers tell you, people of faith, to consider the promises that God has revealed in His Word, the Bible, and the promises made to you by God and to teach about the free forgiveness of sins through Christ for you. So if we were to teach something else, like salvation isn't a free gift, that you have to work for it, well, that would be a problem, wouldn't it? So we are to rightly handle the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. So two words here I want to kind of emphasize for you. Irreverent babble. Profane, empty utterances is what this really translates into. So no one is to get up in this pulpit and, and tell you profane, empty utterances. And neither are you then to go pass them on to anyone else, right? Because our talk then will spread like a feeding canker. That's, what, that's how gangrene is translated into the original language. More like a feeding canker. Is that not descriptive enough for us? Right? That's how profane, empty utterances from the pulpit will turn into like a feeding canker. Nasty, pus-like uh, pus and grotesque and rotting away in the flesh. Now, who's doing this kind of thing? Well, two people are listed. Hymenaeus and Philetus. These two guys, they are false teachers in Ephesus who have swerved from the truth. They've missed aim saying that the resurrection has already happened. So you know when you're archery, right? Where do you want to get the arrow? In the bullseye, right? So Paul talks about swerving from the truth like missing the mark, missing the bullseye. That's what these two guys, Hymenaeus and Philetus, are doing. They're saying that the resurrection has already happened. That's missing the mark, because it's not true. These guys don't believe that Jesus has already returned, and we've been raised from the dead and all that. What they're doing, the best that I could find, was that they're preaching some kind of a spiritual resurrection. Right? They're, they're going to the people and saying, hey, I, we know what Paul's told you, but let us tell you what's really going on. The resurrection he's talking about is just a spiritual one. It's kind of like... It's already happened and you can't see it and we're just going to, we'll die and then we'll just kind of live forever in the cosmos, kind of floating and being one with God, something like that. That's not true. That's the profane, empty utterance that spreads like a feeding canker. It's not going to do anyone any good. And Paul is preaching just the opposite, right? Our resurrection is a physical one. Because it says in our baptism, we have died with Christ and have been resurrected with Him. Not only that, but we will rise from the dead with our bodies. So this false teaching of the resurrection has already happened 
is upsetting some people. Well, some of you know what that's like. I've heard a story here. It goes back many years before my time, but someone told me that years, many years ago in a Bible study uh, after the service that not a member of the church, but a visitor or something piped up and denied the virgin birth or something like that. Well, you can imagine in a Bible study that's, you know, attended by mostly members of the church who believe, who are in unity that Jesus was born from the Virgin Mary, when someone pipes up that that's not the case, it can be very upsetting to people, right? And so you can imagine what this scene must have been like because this person who is no longer with us anymore was, would remind me of this quite often. So it must have made quite an impact in this person's life because it was so upsetting to this person's faith to hear that. But Paul goes on and says, God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. So this is a quotation. He says, the Lord knows those who are His. Well, that's comforting. God knows us. We are His. It's good to know. But where does he get this quotation? Well, you can find it in the book of Numbers in the Old Testament, chapter 16, verse 5. But then he says another quotation. He says, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Well, that's pretty good too, right? Everyone who names the name of the Lord, you and I, we know, we use the Lord's name, right? Let us depart from iniquity, from sin. That's good news. Well, where does Paul get this? No one knows. And that's not to say that I I couldn't find it in hours worth of pouring through all my books. No, it's that 2,000 years of Christian scholarship can't find where Paul got this quote. So we chalk it up to maybe it was a popular idiom of the day, and that's about it. Now Paul's going to set up a comparison for us. He's going to have us picture a mansion with stuff inside it. Vessels of gold and silver and vessels of wood and clay. He says, now in a great mansion or house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. I had to think about this at first. Okay, so we have, uh, we have stuff in our house that we use uh, that's honorable, like drinking cups and plates for dinner, and then we have the dishonorable vessels. We have a toilet. Okay, that's what I was thinking, Right? That's not quite what Paul's talking about. He's talking about cups and pots. So in a mansion, you got your cups of gold and silver. That's the nice stuff you have up in your china cabinet. And then you got the everyday use stuff. The cups that are made of wood and clay that get nasty over time. And you just throw them out the window in the street and people trample them underfoot. It gets all ground into the dirt road, right? Jill and I saw this in Israel. The bus pulls over to stop. You get out and look at different things. You're walking on pottery from the 4th century. It's, the, it's not anything valuable. Israel, they don't let you take it home. You just leave it there. But that's the stuff that people just tossed out, right? The stuff that gets old, it breaks, you throw it out. So here's the comparison. If anyone cleanses himself what is, from what is dishonorable the cups and pots you throw away, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the mansion, ready for every good work. Because the other stuff you throw away. 
And you don't want to be connected with the dishonorable stuff of wood and clay that gets trampled. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness. That is, resist by means of God's word youthful passions, which are lusts, strong emotions, and desires, and pursue righteousness. Separate from self. Separate yourself from, from the wood and clay of irreverent babble. And hang on to faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And a pure heart is one that we ask for, right, in our service? That's one having been cleansed by Christ's blood and forgiveness. So Paul says, have nothing to do with foolish, uninstructed controversies. You know that they breed arguments. That's why I don't get up here in the pulpit and babble on about stuff I'm not an expert in. Because I would just be wrong about it. And then you would argue with me about it afterwards. It's not going to do anybody any good. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. My friends, we are approaching Reformation Sunday in a couple weeks. And do you imagine for any, any minute that Martin Luther was gentle in correcting his opponents? Doesn't seem that way, does it? He seems like a pretty cantankerous man in arguing with the papists and others, the reformed, uh, the, the uh, Zwingli and Calvin and those guys, right? So why wasn't Martin Luther following this sound apostolic advice? Well, he did address his letters to the Pope reverently. He always addressed the Pope with my dear excellent, venerant, venerated, your excellency, all this stuff. I mean, he would, he would open his letters with uh, uh, kindness. Uh, then later he would launch into his anger, right? Nevertheless, that is something to think about <laughs> in correcting our opponents with gentleness. It's not always easy. So in dealing with, uh, you know, chapel here, right? It's one thing for me to come and have chapel with preschoolers, which I've been doing all these years, right? It's another thing to then talk with young people that are a little older, let's say 11 to 13 years old, which I have been doing these last several weeks now with our Firm Foundation Academy, our classical Christian academy that is using our facilities. That has been very interesting. I cannot imagine that any of these students in this class have parents who are not Christian because you can tell that it's very important that their children receive this kind of education. But in having little Bible time with these students, you do hear some interesting alternative opinions <laughs> as to who Jesus is and what he has done and what we are to do in response. So it has been a challenge for me to correct opponents, which they're not really my opponents, but to gently show them the way through gentleness, right? I had one young person say to me the other day, well, you know, uh, we don't have to go to church. You know, we can still be saved by not going to church and praying, and we don't have to do all this stuff. And, you know, I have to just kind of step back for a moment. Okay, 
I know where young people come from, right? They're still living at home. They're still obeying the law of mom and dad, right? So it's natural for us to want to, we want to know what's the least amount that we can do and still get the reward, right? So it's only natural to think, well, I don't have to go to church. I can still get saved without doing all this stuff. Anyways, I digress. Paul says, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So Paul is giving hope even to the false teachers, uh, Hymenaeus and Philetus, that eventually maybe they will come to the truth and escape the snare of the devil, which is what we would hope for anyone caught in the trap of irreverent babble and squabbles but I will tell you that Satan hates to hear God's name and cannot remain long where it is spread and called upon from the heart. So even though we may say, you know, uh, Satan is always attacking us here at St. Paul Lutheran Church, we have the confidence of knowing that because his name is on our mouth, right, is in our mouths, Satan flees from that. And that is a comfort. God's word is also in our mouth when we drop something on our foot or something injures us or we get mad about something, that's probably not the best way to use God's name. But when we call upon his name in love from the heart and reverence, then the devil does flee and he departs. Now Paul is going to shift to the last days, and this is where I'll finish here. He says at the beginning of chapter 3, understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Well, no kidding. As if his present day wasn't difficult enough. He says people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God and having the outward appearance of godliness but denying its power. You think he left anything out? Paul describes everyone who has ever lived in every era between Jesus' ascension and the time when he will come back. You and I are in there. And I think if we, if we hear those, we can see a little bit of ourselves in some of those. I know I can myself. Paul says, avoid such people. My goodness, I don't want to be avoided and neither do you. But there is hope and that there is forgiveness from Jesus Christ. So we do not deny his power. But Paul says, from among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Anybody here a traveling salesman? It's kind of a dying job, isn't it? Since everything can be bought on Amazon now. Well, I want you to picture that stereotypical 1950s traveling salesman. What's the deal with the travel? What, what, what was their angle? What was their, their, their thing to get a sale? Picture the rainbow vacuum cleaner salesman, right? The $3,000 vacuum cleaner. Probably what 
probably didn't cost that in the 50s, but adjusted for inflation, it's a $3,000 vacuum cleaner today. What was their angle? Well, the traveling salesman would go to these neighborhoods during the day, wouldn't he? When the husband of the house was out doing his job. So, who answers the door? The housewife. Housewife. I know I'm being ancient here, right? So, that's the thing. The traveling salesman gets in there to sell the vacuum cleaner to the unsuspecting housewife who doesn't control the money in the 1950s. The husband does, right? And when the husband comes home, you spend $3,000 adjusted for inflation on a vacuum cleaner? <laughs> this is what's going on here. It's kind of a strange contextual thing in Paul's day. See, religious quackery was, well, was received by women in the Roman Empire. And so these false teachers like Philetus and Hymenaeus would visit the women during the day when the men were out in the fields or working and try to sell them this mumbo-jumbo religion, this, uh, this uh, gangrenous untruth that spread and didn't do anyone any good, right? That, that's what's going on here. Paul is saying that these guys are among us who creep into these houses and, and capture weak women. And in the Greek, it's silly women. Not like goofy or funny. It's women who have a lack of sense of common sense. So they are, are unable to discern the truth, and so they wish to know the truth, but they just can never come to the knowledge of the truth. Paul says, just as James and Jambres opposed Moses, who are these guys? We don't really know. It's not, they're not in the Bible. So we think Paul is getting this from Jewish tradition, and we think these are the names of the magicians in Pharaoh's court in Egypt. So those men oppose the truth. So do Philetus and Hymenaeus. These guys are corrupted in mind and disqualified to be pastors. They are thrown out of the contest. Remember Paul talks about our faith as like running towards the, the end of the game, like in a race. These ministers are disqualified from the race. But they will not get very far. For their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. All this is to say, my friends, that although Paul writes these words specifically about the temptations that attack the ministry of the Christian church, through these last 2,000 years to whenever Christ returns, they apply to each and every one of us and Christians all over the world. Because we daily fall into sin, but God calls us to faith again through His Word and reminds us of the forgiveness we have of our sin, all those things that were mentioned in that, that Paul mentioned in that text, and the cleansing of our hearts that are through Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit creates an ongoing desire in us to cast our sins at the foot of the cross where Jesus paid for them with His blood and His life. So Paul's letter to Timothy it's good news for us all, not just for pastors, because the Spirit gives you discernment to hold ministers accountable for handling the truth, which sets people free, and not our own opinion on topics that we are not experts on, which are useless babble to be thrown away like a used Dixie cup. 
So may God guard us all against temptation and give us an extra measure of godliness instead of godlessness in these last days. Jesus is returning to take us home with him on a new earth in the new heavens, and he will certainly do it. Amen.